we have been in a series on the armor, putting on the armor that God has provided for us. Today we're getting close to the end of this, and I want to share some things with you as we look at this. In our world, where you and I live, unlike a lot of places, where Bibles are plentiful and the churches are protected, it is easy for us to get lax in our obedience and in lukewarm in our commitment to God. But the true soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ realizes we're in a battle. It is real. And it is pertinent to exactly where we are. They are committed to their commander-in-chief that we are to do his will. They've read the manual and they know what the manual says and they're prepared for battle. The question is, do I really believe there's a battle going on? Do I want to get in it? Or do I not care anything about it at all? I'll leave that to somebody else. As we have read and heard this summer about the furor of the sexual scandal in the Catholic Church and in the evangelical churches, including Southern Baptist, I want you to understand that there's one emotion that we should not ever have, and it is the emotion of surprise. That's the world we live in, folks. That's the world we live in. Satan is after the testimony of the church and of those who are part of it. There is a war going on, and Ephesians 6 tells us that there is armor for us to put on that's been provided by Christ, but we have to put it on. We began with the sturdy belt of truth. Satan is a liar, and the only defense against Satan's lie is the truth. And the truth is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I must know the truth, and the truth must be in me if I'm going to have victory. That's my only defense. He's provided the breastplate of righteousness. I am to be right with God and right with others. It protects my heart. I need a heart that is smart. In all of this, he's provided peace. Verse 15 of Ephesians 6 says, With our feet fitted with the gospel, the good news of peace. You can't fight in a war if you don't have peace. And then also, he's provided the shield of faith. You saw those shields a while ago. We're told, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That shield of faith is the only thing that will stop those darts. And then he has provided the helmet of salvation. He tells us, now we are to take up the helmet of salvation. We're to take it up. It's there, but now is the time to use it. My head must be protected in battle. Now, I wore this the other day, last Sunday, 
And as you could tell, if you were here, my head's not big enough. You didn't know that. But this is the helmet that is to be worn because your head and your heart, any serious wounds to those are probably fatal. And we are to wear the helmet. And God says that is to protect us, our mind. But this morning we're coming to the next and the last piece of armor that we have here in this. And I want you to see what God says. The mind of our bodies is where Satan wants to set up a stronghold. He wants to invade and to establish that stronghold. And we have to have protection. We have what God supplies in giving us the protection we need. But I want to tell you something else. Many times we do not put on the pieces and we are caught in the battle. Let me say something to you. If you just put on the armor and that's all you ever do, you are neutral at best. Let me say to you that God has no generals. Every man and woman, young man and young lady, is to be infantry. We're on the front lines with the enemy. We need to understand that. That's what we have to do. It's not just enough to stay alive against the enemy. We're to go after the enemy, friend. We're to go after the enemy. So the next piece of armor is offensive. All the other pieces have been defensive. Now we're coming to an offensive piece of armor. Ephesians 6, I hope you have your Bible there. I'm going to ask you to stand and follow along in your copy of God's Word. And I am going to begin reading in verse 10, and we're going to look at these. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now listen to them. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then verse 17, And take, God's Word says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, knowing that it is possible for an entire generation to lose all knowledge of the love and the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you would cause and call us, your children, to take seriously the armor that we are to wear 
to defend ourselves and our nation against Satan's attack. And Father, may we be more zealous in sharing the gospel than we've ever been before because there is a generation depending on us. And may we realize that this armor that you have provided not only can protect us, but Father, it can make a difference in a nation. I pray that. And I pray our sincerity as we study the word. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. The Roman sword that is spoken of in this, as Paul watched that all those days that he was imprisoned, is not the sharp, narrow sword that kills swiftly and quickly, but it is the wide sword that we talked about last week. Most of them were about four inches wide and about four feet long. They were hacking instruments. They were used to wade into the armor, into the armor of the enemy and to be able to dis, dislodge everything the enemy has, even taking their life. That's the sword that is talked about. It's a powerful weapon. And it's to be handled by both hands. That's how it was taken. Now you know, the weapons that we have today, that our military wears today, are these weapons. And they're more mighty than anything that men of that day were able to handle. And this weapon is the weapon that represents what we use. But let me share something else with you. Someone was kind enough to bring me a sword this morning. And I want to share this with you about the sword. It's a real sword. And this is similar to what you have seen. And I want you to keep the eye on this, and I want you to watch this as we go through some of God's Word this morning with the sword and how it is to be handled. And so I want you to see what God's Word says about this. He's provided all the defensive armor, and now He provides the only offensive piece, which is the sword that we see. And I want us to look at the explanation of the sword this morning. And I'm going to leave the sword close right here because I'm going to be using it from time to time if I can leave it here. I want you to see some things. On your outline, and I hope you will follow on your outline and you will fill in the blanks there. Listen to what verse 17 again says. The sword of the Spirit, we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God which is the Word of God. Now I want you to notice in that verse, the Spirit of God is not the sword. The Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and it's the Word of God that becomes the sword. The Word of God that is taken from the Bible becomes the sword. 
Now listen carefully what I'm going to tell you because this may be new information that you've never been exposed to. And I want you to hear it and I want you to learn it today. There are two Greek words that translate the English word, word. I want you to look at these and I want you to notice these. On your outline, the first one by that first bullet is logos. Logos. Write that in, if you would, on your outline. You've heard of Christian bookstores that is called Logos. There's a chain of them. And this is where they get their name. What does that word Logos mean? Well, let me give you some examples of it. It's used over 300 times in the Bible. But John 1.1 really gives the explanation of it. In the beginning was the Logos... And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Logos simply is a reference to Jesus Christ. The Logos is God's final word to man. It also describes the revelation of God's word, the Bible, which we have in this book we call the Bible. The Bible in its totality is the Logos. Now follow me. Don't let me lose you. The second bullet. There's another word for the English word, word. It is rhema. Rhema. It's on the screen where you can see it. Write that in. I want you to understanding that. Understanding the difference between the Logos and the rhema is all the difference in the world being able to go against the enemy. And I want you to see that. Don't you miss it at all. Rhema is used about 60 times. And here's what it means. It means the sayings are the utterances of God. The sayings are the utterances of God. That's what rhema means. Now listen to Ephesians six seventeen. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Rhema of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Rhema of God. We could say it this way the sword of the Spirit, which is the sayings, are the utterances of God. Now, don't let me lose you. It's going to get a little deeper here. In a real sense, listen to what I'm saying. In a real sense, this whole book, the Bible, is the room for the armory. We reach into this room and we pull out the swords, the armory that we need for the battle we find ourselves in. In the Logos, you find the Rhema, which makes the difference in how we handle the enemy and how we fight in the battle. Now listen what this means. This means that the Bible is a double blessing now. And I want you to see that. It is the record of what God says and said and has done. That's what the Bible is. That's the Logos. But beyond that, beyond that, as we study the Word of God... And the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, comes along and He 
personalizes, now listen carefully, he personalizes, he customizes, he individualizes a passage of Scripture for me that I can use in my battle against the enemy. It's the rhema that makes the difference because it is supplied and is to be used for a specific occasion in the battle against the enemy. It has become a double battle. Listen to this passage. Romans 10, 17. You can probably quote it. Many of you can. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. Did you ever get in God's Word and read it and you didn't have any faith? You didn't get any faith? Your faith didn't get increased? Well, there's a reason for that. It's the rhema that increases your faith. You don't get the rhema until you get in the Word. And as you get in the Word, God gives you those personalized, customized, individualized pieces of Scripture that you use at that moment against the enemy. It's the rhema. The passage teaches that as we study and we're studying God's Word, that God pulls from His Word, the Logos, He pulls a saying that becomes a sword for us that we can experience it. It comes to our heart. It comes to our need in the very time and heat of battle. It's what he's saying. That takes place as faith begins to develop in your life. And it happens most of all when you memorize Scripture, I believe. When you begin to memorize Scripture, that's when it begins to become alive and it begins to be the rhema for your life. It's essential to comprehend what God is saying in His Word. That's the explanation of the sword. Now, I want to give you the effect of the sword. And I want you to see this. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the Word, the Logos there, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This passage that I just read is militant about the Word of God. I don't know any other word to say it. It says the word is living, the word is powerful, the word is energetic, it pierces the heart, it causes men to retreat, it is sharp to divide, and it is sharp to discern, and the word of God is the most dreaded weapon you can ever take against the enemy. That's what God's word says. That's what the Logos is. Let me tell you something about the Logos. You need to understand. You can understand that better with this illustration, maybe. This wounds to kill. God's Word wounds to heal. There's a difference. This can pierce your heart, but this can divide asunder the bone and the marrow in your body. That's the difference between these. The physical sword that I'm holding my my hand, wounds to kill, this wounds to heal. That's the difference in these 
weapons. And it is the sword that comes from the rhema that is exactly what I need for the enemy. Now I want you to hold on and I want you to listen to some things here in a minute about how Jesus handled the rhema at a time that he needed it in his life. Acts 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, these people that was listening to the apostles, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I want you to notice what happened there on the day of Pentecost. Did you know that Peter who was preaching did not even get to offer the invitation? They offered the invitation. The men listening to him did. They said, what are we supposed to do? That's how powerful the word is when it is explained. That's the reason that nothing but the word will ever bring a change in your life. That's the power of it. That's how it has that power to make a difference. That's what had happened. What's going on? What do we need to do? When the sword of the Spirit is unleashed in its power, it has the Holy Spirit power behind it to make it everything that is right to change our lives and our hearts. Have you ever walked out of a service at the end of it? And when you walked out of there, you said to yourself, he's been reading my mail. How do you know all of that? How do you know all that was going on? Well, let me tell you something. That's the sword of the Spirit. It has nothing to do with the pastor. It's the sword of the Spirit that makes a difference in their life. So that's what he's talking about. Now, as always the case, the one who makes the weapon knows how to use it better than anybody else. And so the one who makes our weapons that we're to use in this hand-to-hand combat with Satan is the Lord Jesus Christ. He designed them and he knows how to use them. So I want you to watch something and listen as we go through it. Turn your Bibles over to Matthew. We're going to be in the fourth chapter of Matthew. This is Jesus when he was confronted by Satan. And I want you to see this. In fact, in fact, those first 11 verses of chapter 4 tell us about it. But really, chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together. Let me give you a little reminder of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is when Jesus Christ was baptized. You remember John the Baptist baptized him? We saw that and heard about that just a little bit ago as the pastor read from his word. And you will remember when he came up out of the water that a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In the three attacks that Satan brings against Christ, He says two times out of those three, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God, he's saying. That's how he comes. On your outline, I want you to write this down. There's three bullets there, and this is the last you'll be writing. Write all three of them right now, and then I want you to listen. 
The first temptation, number one, is the lust of the flesh. Write that out there. This is how Satan works. The lust of the flesh. That's exactly what 1 John 2.16 tells us. The lust of the flesh. Second temptation. Second bullet there. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Write that in. And the third temptation, the pride of life. The pride of life. Now I want you to see how Jesus uses the rhema against the enemy. Listen to it carefully. Matthew 4, verse, 22, verse 2 and 3. Listen as you follow along in your word. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus Christ was hungry. He was the God-man. And the tempter came to him, or the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God. He heard, Jesus, he heard God's the Father say that to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's the lust of the flesh. I want you to notice this. Satan is saying to Jesus, Satisfy your hunger. You can satisfy your hunger. Turn these stones into direct bread. Do a little miracle. Make a little bread. That's what he's saying. Do that. In other words, you're the son of God. Satisfy your hunger. You don't have to continue to be hungry. Just do that. Friend, I want to tell you, Satan was tempting Jesus Christ to take his own need and by his divine power as God, the son, to meet that needs. But listen to me very carefully. Satan was trying to destroy the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? I want you to understand it. Listen carefully. He was trying to get Christ to act independent of the Father. And do you understand, had Jesus Christ acted independent of the Father, this whole thing of the cross would have been annulled. It would have been annulled because Jesus Christ never did one thing for himself at all. He would have ceased to function as a God-man. Never in the New Testament did he do a miracle for himself. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. the incarnation would have been over. Listen to what and watch carefully to this next one. The next time of temptation that Jesus now comes back at him with, I should say. Jesus answered in verse 4 of Matthew 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema. There's rhema. Not Logos, Rhema. But every Rhema, that means personalized, customized, individualized. That's how we live. That's how we're supposed to live. That's what he says that comes from the mouth of God. Satan, Jesus Christ is saying, God keeps people alive, not bread. He can bring nourishment to me in ways you do not even know, Satan. He don't have to have bread to do that. The key word in that verse that I read, verse 4, is that is the word alone. Alone. 
Notice that. He's saying, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Alone. Man's not supposed to do that. Not at all. He's saying, I will not act against my Father's will. I will not be independent of God. And God is saying to you and He's saying to me, you cannot be independent of me and win in the battle. You can't do that. It's what He's saying to His Son uh, there. Alone, the sword will stop Satan. He uses it to do so. I will not act independently of my Father. Notice the second temptation. It's the lust of the eyes. Matthew 4, 5, and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the second temptation that Satan brings to the Lord Jesus Christ happens 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that when you stood up there and you looked down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley, 450 feet down, it'd make you dizzy just looking down there to see it. It was so high. The reference to the temple and the holy city are not incidental They are essential. You know why? The Jews were taught from time immemorial, it seems, that according to rabbinic tradition, when Jesus Christ came to the earth, He would sit down on the temple roof. That's the reason Satan took Him up there. If Jesus had done that, jumped and landed, He would have certainly been identified as the Messiah. No question about it. Satan's saying, Christ, if you cannot perform a miracle independent of the Father, then knit the Father to perform a miracle for you. It's what he's saying. It's what he's saying. In that first temptation, Jesus Christ was saying that he was not going to perform a miracle to be outside the Father's will. But now in this second temptation, he's trying to get Jesus Christ to act presumptuously against the Father. Satan wanted Christ to set himself up as a wonder worker. And that's what he's telling him, put on a show. But Jesus had a sword ready. In verse 7, Matthew 4, 7, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't presume upon God. Don't be presumptuous. Listen, if Jesus Christ was afraid to presume upon His own Father, what makes you think and me think that I can presume upon God and get away with it? What makes me think that I can keep living like the world and presume that it'll be all right and God will watch over it? What makes me think I can say, I know what the Bible says about that, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, and I'll get God's forgiveness somewhere down the road. Don't you count on that, friend. Don't you presume against the Father. The Son didn't. We cannot. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't presume that at all. There was a man in that day while Jesus was living on the earth named Simon Mangus. You may have heard about Simon Mangus before. He said he was the Messiah. And to prove it, he got up on the Temple Mount and he dived off that 450 feet. I understand there was nothing wrong with the dive. But the landing did him in. That's the presumption of, against God. It messed him up. When Jesus pulled out the perfect sword, he said, Satan, don't you tempt God. And don't you try to set traps for God. That's what he's saying. Listen, I'm going to give you something right here. When Satan quoted Scripture that second time, he quoted it from Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12, and he left out a part that he wanted left out. Here's what he quoted. Let me give it to you again. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But listen to what he left out. Listen to this very carefully. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. Now here's the part He left out. To guard you in all your ways. He left that out. Do you know what that means to guard you in all your ways? That means God will guard you as long as you're in obedience to Him and doing His will. Satan left that out. He was going to try to trick the Son to go ahead and do it. He'll do that in your life. He'll do that in my life. He left that part out. The part of obedience and service, you can't presume upon God. You cannot do that when you're not in His will. Satan quotes Scripture, but he don't always quote it right. Let me give you the third temptation. This is the temptation of the pride of life. Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, again, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Just worship me. Now, may you, you may not be able to believe that Satan could carry this off, but do you remember before we started this series, I preached a message on the enemy, Satan. And remember me telling you that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that he is the prince of this world? He could do that. And you know what he's saying? He's saying to him, he's a, a, trying to... Uh, get at Satan's pride, at Christ's pride by this particular thing, his personal ambition. Satan is saying, Jesus, the means justifies the or the ends justifies the means, whatever means you have to use. You see, he knew that Jesus Christ had been sent to this earth to establish a kingdom. He knew that. But he's saying, you don't have to go through the cross and you don't have to go through all the rejection, and you don't have to go through death. 
You can bypass all of that and you can take this world and set you up a kingdom right here on this world, in this world and you don't have to do all that other that is the plans. You can have a temporal kingdom in the place of a divine heavenly kingdom and you can have it right now. That's what he's saying. Once again, Jesus Christ has a Ramah. Matthew 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You remember how that meeting ended, don't you? The Bible says, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. He got the bread he needed then. He got what he was needing. Who won that battle? Jesus Christ won that battle. And you and I can have victory through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us if we too will learn to have the rhema handy. He'll do that. James 4, 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will flee. How do you resist him? With the rhema. This book, the, God, the Word of God, has all the rhema you're ever going to need. It's all right here. But it's not going to get in your heart and in your head until you get it out of here and it becomes rhema for you, not just logos. Let me give you some life application. Three truths about the rhema, and I want you to see those. And maybe you've never seen these before, but I want you to see it now, and I want you to know it's what God says about that. Listen to it. Here's what God's Word says concerning this. The first truth is... This rhema, the word rhema, explains the dynamic of preaching. You come to church on Sunday, and the pastor gets up and preaches on a subject that has nothing to do with what you're dealing with. Nothing at all. You sit there, you listen, your heart is open to the Spirit and the Word of God, And all of a sudden, out of that message that is not germane to anything you're thinking about, all of a sudden there is a sword that comes from God's Word, maybe through the mouth of the pastor, and that sword is yours all of a sudden. When someone preaches the Word of God, it's like they're standing up here and they're taking the sword of the Lord and they're just slinging it out over the whole congregation. One of them will fit your need for what you're having now or what you're going to have soon. That's what it's all about. And when that pastor preaches the Word of God, then the sword of God is yours to use. And some of them are going to reach your heart and become your rhema. That's why the preaching of the Word is so vital. There's a lot of preaching going on, but it may not all be the Word. Let me give you the second truth. The second truth that this encourages discipline in the reading of the Bible systematically. Systematically. Maybe you have never visited all of the armor room. You've never been in all of it. You don't understand all of it. I started reading. I got through Genesis and I got through Exodus and I came to Leviticus. There is no armors. There's no swords in Leviticus. 
Well, it's hard. I understand that. So I just stop reading. Well, you know what? You stop too soon. Had you gone on over to the next one, Deuteronomy, all the swords that Jesus Christ brought against Satan that day come out of the book of Deuteronomy. Did you know that? All three of them. Let me tell you something else. Friend, Jesus Christ, God's Son and the Father, put a special blessing in the Old Testament and ranked Deuteronomy right up with some of those other great books in the Old Testament. You understand how important that is? You need to get in those places. I'm telling you, you can put it in the same category as Daniel and Isaiah. That's how important it is. It's essential. It's essential to your life and to mine. God said, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on that book. And he says that there are rhema in all these books. Let me give you the last one, the third one, truth. This truth exhorts us to memorize key passages of God's Word. Memorize them. Those who major on memorization of God's Word take this command to heart. They know what it means. When we saw Jesus Christ in the wilderness after He had been fasting... For 40 days and Satan come after him you don't hear anything about him saying wait Satan until I can get out of concordance I want to tell you in my life when Satan comes after me I'm usually not carrying a Bible and I don't have a concordance anywhere on me I don't have it and most of the time you'll not have it that's the reason it's so vital that you begin to commit to memory what I'm talking about when you memorize this you will see that word, that rhema, become yours. You'll go back over it and you'll use it again and again. That's where the rhemas are, mostly in what you memorize. I know you think I'm like a broken CD. I'm going to keep going over this and over this until you get it. I don't know how long that's going to take. Most of us do not spend very much time in God's Word. We just skip around all over it, it seems like, instead of getting in it. This is what Paul meant in Colossians 3.16, let the Logos of Christ dwell richly in all wisdom. Let that Logos dwell richly in all wisdom in you. Be establishing these swords in your life. Be doing that. Study God's Word daily. Memorize God's Word. Get in it. I wonder as I look back over a lot of years as a pastor, and even before I was ever a pastor, I wonder what happened to some of my friends. Why did they get off so deep in the muck and the mire? men and women that said they knew God and they trusted God and they were following God. And the next thing I knew, they were out in the middle of the desert. The middle of the desert. Where was the Word of God in all of that? Where was it? Frankly, I'm frightened for the state of the church of Jesus Christ under our watch today. 
I had a whole lot more passed to me than I'm passing on to the generation after me, and so did you. So did you. If we don't begin to take the Word of God seriously, if we don't read it, if we don't hear it, if we don't study it, if we don't memorize it, if we don't meditate on it, how are we going to get a grip on God's Word when the enemy comes after us? And I want to tell you, he will come after us if he hadn't already come for you. What are we going to, how are we going to do it? How are we going to live with all against all that? Friend, the reason that some of us have no power against the enemy We've never heard of the Rama and Rama, and we have no Rama that we can call our own. When are we going to start doing it? How much time do you think you got left? Are you presuming on God to give you a lot of time? Don't you do it. Don't you do it. I want to ask you to stand. We're going to have our invitation.